Romans chapter 12 is where I'd like us to turn this morning. Book of Romans chapter 12. I'm going to quickly move through verses 9 through 16 and then deal a little bit more extensively with verses 17 through 21. Uh, This will be the last uh, discussion in our series called Contending Together based on Philippians 1 and verse 29. Paul said, I want to hear that you are standing firm, contending together as one man for the faith of the gospel of Christ. And as a church family, uh, this should be our passion and desire in regards to life together as the body of Christ, that we would stand firm, contending together as one man, as one individual, so united in love and desire and gifts and capacities and strengths by the Spirit, that we would begin to have an increasingly greater impact on the world around us. That should be our desire, that we would stand together yet as if we were one. Last Sunday morning, we spent some time to look at the emphasis from verses 3 down through verse 8. And the emphasis of our study last Sunday morning was this. God loves the church. God loves the church. He is passionate about and committed to the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is adorning and preparing the church as his bride, which one day he will receive gloriously, spotlessly, and forever. And we as Christians have the privilege of being part of this organism called the body of Christ that God deeply loves. A connection to Christ means a connection to the local church. Our emphasis flowed out of verse 5 last week in Romans. And verse 5 says this. It says, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Okay, so there is this gathering together of different people into one body. And when you come to Christ and make a commitment to become a follower of Jesus, you made a commitment to the local church, which is God's physical expression on planet Earth today. Okay, that is by virtue of your faith in Christ, you became part of the body of Christ, according to Romans 12. That leads me to a question that I think we need to answer. Why is it that some of us do not commit to being an integral part of the local church. And what I mean by that is, why is it that some of us don't go beyond merely attending on Sunday morning? Why don't we, be go, why don't we move into the realm of being the body of Christ, of serving together and sharing life together? That's the question that comes to my mind as I study this topic. And I want to make two suggestions to answer that question. I think one is this. Some of us don't realize that being connected to Christ means that we are essentially and organically connected to the body of Christ. To be saved is to be part of the church. I can't be a Christian without being part of the church because Romans 12, 5 says, we are all, every believer is part of Christ's body. But let's be honest and say that sometimes our commitment, and I'll include myself in this, sometimes our commitment to the local body doesn't emulate or resemble the commitment that God has to the local church. And the question that bangs around in my mind sometimes is why? And I think one of the reasons is this. I think often people have been hurt in the context of relationships. They have been wounded. Okay? 
by churches, by people. And this morning I want to say this to you. You, if you have experienced that, you are not alone. That conflict sometimes creates distance. It creates bitterness. It makes us gun shy. And I want you to know as a church family, if you're considering getting more deeply involved, then those are some of the things that kind of pop up on the radar and keep you from full commitment. Uh, Any other human being around you understands that? Because all of us live in the same world that you live in. We know what it is to get knocked and banged around at times. And another observation I want to make by introduction is this. If you're looking for a perfect church, okay, the exit doors are in the back and to the side, okay? Uh, We are not a perfect church. We don't have to be a perfect church. There are no perfect churches. And as one person has slightly observed, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you will ruin it. The people in this church, and here's here's the glorious thing. Okay, and just let this settle in. The people in this church are just like you. Okay, it's easy to sit and watch certain people and think that they have their act together and I don't. It's easy to feel like someone who is missing something. Okay, understand that as you relate to the body of Christ, the church that you are part of, visiting with us this morning or coming here on a regular basis, we're just like you. We're just like you. We all have this tendency towards failure as a common trait. Hurts will come from within the church and from outside of the church. We need to be realistic and let people be people as we strive to be what God wants us to be. Give people some room to make mistakes. One of the things that we do in premarital counseling is we always deal with the issue of conflict resolution. Right? And a lot of soon-to-be marrieds look at you and say, why do we have to spend so much time on conflict resolution? The simple answer is because you're like us. You're people, okay? You're going to struggle. There are going to be times that you offend each other and you need to learn how to navigate those struggles and difficulties in the context of relationships. And so all of us deal with times of struggle. This text tells us how to get along with each other in the context of Christian community, in the context of the body that we are part of by virtue of being born again. Okay, this text addresses how to get along. And I'm going to boil it down to two basic principles that will help us to protect unity and get along within the local church that we are part of. Okay, and those two thoughts are going to be these. Number one is this. Let your love for one another be sincere or genuine. Okay, let your love for one another be sincere or genuine. And secondly, this. Practice that sincere love towards all people, including those who injure, wound, and hurt you. Okay? Let your love be genuine. And secondly, practice that genuine love in context where you have been injured or wounded. Okay, so let's pick up on the first thought. Verse 9 down through verse 16. Can I ask someone in the back, can you bring up these lights for me if you would real quick? Someone gets up, I'll feel better. Okay, thank you. All right. Not because of my eyesight, but so that you can see me better. Okay? Okay, there it is. Okay, verse 9 of Romans 12. Love must be sincere. And in the original language, the must be isn't in the text. Okay? What it basically has is love, sincere, a noun, and an adjective. Okay, and the imperatival force or the command force that all translations put in is very obvious when you look at this kind of a Greek construction. 
Okay, love sincere. Let your love be sincere. Let it be genuine. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. May God help us to do that. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, in family love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient when afflicted, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the sight of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as I read through that, you should notice that there are a lot of commands a lot of imperatives that relate to life together in a fallen world. Uh, the structure of the text is basically to string together, almost like pearls on a string, directives that, that contain ethical content. Okay, the, There are a number of ethical directives that as you read through this text, they just kind of pile up and stack up. My purpose this morning is not going to be to go through all of those ethical directives. Okay, it would take too much time, and ultimately, I think we would lose the thrust of what's going on here. In the Greek language, there was, and in the, in the New Testament time period, if you did this, if you listed this many directives and ethical commands in a row, you were after a greater, larger picture or emphasis. Whereas the goal wasn't that you would take apart each one of these commands and seek to understand them. Not that that would be wrong and unhelpful, but as... The New Testament church read through this passage of Scripture. They were being hit with a, an overwhelming call from the Apostle Paul to love each other in the context of church life. That's the, the overall emphasis of this text. Okay, and I think that the, the overall thrust can simply be summarized in the statement, let your love be sincere. Don't let your affections for your brothers and sisters in Christ, don't let it be an act on a stage. Okay, let your love be sincere. Literally, don't let it be a love that hides behind a mask while harboring feelings of bitterness and resentment. Let it be a love that is genuine, that is sincere, that flows out of a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God and understands that we are the body of Christ. A group of people who have a fallen nature, who by God's grace have been redeemed and called by God to live together. And for that to happen, we must cultivate a sincere love for each other. Unhypocritical, not acted out, but a love that emerges from the love that God has displayed for us through Jesus Christ. The word uh, that he uses here, I think in a sense, it, it carries a, a tone of, of warning. The idea of love is the Christian word for agape love. It is a well-known Christian virtue. Points to purity and the sacrificial nature of this love. All, other, all the other words for love in the Greek New Testament can also have negative connotations. 
Okay, the word agape is the word that maintains a a sense of purity, of self-sacrifice in its function in the New Testament scriptures. All the other words are good words, but they can also take on negative connotations. Okay, so the word agape is the most sincere or pure word that Paul could use to describe this love. Now, here's the question I want to ask you as we just wrap up our thoughts on these verses. Why does Paul say that our love must be genuine and authentic? Why does he raise this to such a high level and build this whole text around it? Why does he do that? Okay, I think the answer to that question is twofold. Number one is because the essence of the Old Testament law is love. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the other laws are contained in this. Okay? So one of the reasons that love is elevated and made a priority in the context of church life, because it is the essence of all of God's laws. If you love people selflessly, genuinely, and sacrificially, you will not violate the other commands of Scripture. Okay? So it is is central to... And is the essence of the Old Testament commands according to the words of Christ. And love is also the central demand of the New Testament covenant. Okay, John 13, 34, after washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus said this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, it is the central demand of the New Testament covenant. It is the essence and summary of the Old Testament law. Genuine love, therefore, must govern and shape all of our relationships, both within the church and outside of the church. Okay, and as you read through the directives that are listed here, you're going to find that Paul moves from church life to life outside of the church and then back in and then back out once again. Okay, what is the emphasis? Let love characterize all of your relationships. Don't let past injuries keep you from loving. Don't let them be an excuse that bumps you out of the essence of what it is to be a Christ follower. Okay, look, here's the bottom line. If I don't love people genuinely from the heart, I am missing the essence and the central command of Scripture. Okay, it's, it's for Paul, it is simply that important. And I think as we, as we look at this, we need to realize that all relationships have times of struggle. Everyone. God's word shows us how to recover from those failures. And I think another emphasis that will emerge is this. As you engage in relationships and by God's grace, begin to build deeper relationships in the body of Christ. Can I encourage you to do this? Will you give people a break? Okay, relax your expectations. Because most of us are going to be unable to meet the expectations that, we, that many of us bring to the table. We need to be realistic. And I think this passage that talks about how to get along with people who have wounded or injured us is there because most of us have had the experience of intentionally or inadvertently injuring or wounding brothers and sisters in Christ. And the thrust of God's word in this context, I think, is to call us to be be realistic. Don't expect perfection from others. Love each other genuinely from the heart. Now let's move to the second section of this text then. Practice that sincere love towards all people okay practice that sincere love towards all people including those who injured and wounded you including those who injure and wound you 
these injuries and wounds will sometimes occur in the context of church life. Sometimes they will, they will occur in the context of your life outside the church. This passage of scripture seeks to move, if you will, in both directions. And is going to help us to understand how do I respond when a brother or sister in Christ lets me down, injures me, wounds me. And how should I respond when someone who doesn't know Christ does that to me? Okay, what is the appropriate biblical response? And what Paul does is he lists four of our default responses. The responses that come without thinking. Okay, the words that spontaneously fly out of your mouth or the thoughts that spontaneously come to mind when you experience a wound or an injury or a hurt. What are the default responses that we have when we're provoked? Look at verse 14. Beginning of the verse, he says this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. First prohibition is what? Don't allow your tongue to go off in a knee-jerk reaction to someone who says something to you that's inappropriate. Okay, don't, and the idea, don't curse them is, don't call down the judgment of God or devastation upon them. Okay, don't curse them. Don't allow your words to respond in a knee-jerk faction. Proverbs says so much about this. Second thing, verse 17. Do not repay evil or anyone evil for evil. Okay, what is this? I think the simple command here is don't retaliate. All right, how many of us in our marriages wish when provoked that we had not given the knee-jerk reaction of retaliation. Because in our retaliation, we bring serious devastation to our relationships. Don't have the mindset of payback. It is a natural response that we have in a tit-for-tat kind of world where we're, we're protecting our territory, making sure that everything's on even ground. Here's what Paul says. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Third, don't seek revenge. Verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for the wrath of God. Revenge is this. It is living, seeking for an opportunity to pay someone back for a wrong that they have done to me. It is usually manifested in a foolish record-keeping of wrongs that have been received. They're quick to the mind, and they have a devastating effect on not only that relationship, but it will affect all of your relationships because that is how bitterness works in our hearts. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. I'll summarize this by saying this. Do not be conquered by evil. That is, don't be overcome and overpowered by hostility. And I think what Paul's giving in verse 21 is clearly a warning. Do not let evil overcome you. Now, this... The way that I want to summarize it is this. Reject or resist responses of retaliation and punishment. It is, in this text, clearly forbidden. Okay, I think it is it's just amazing. When you layer together these four commands, these four negative directives, that there is a clear statement on the part of the Apostle Paul that says, you, should, and I, you and I should reject responses of retaliation and punishment when we are wounded. They are absolutely forbidden. And in my notes I wrote in this word earlier this morning. They are absolutely, absolutely forbidden. And they are incredibly natural. They are incredibly natural. Okay. We have a profound tendency. 
to want to defend ourselves. To want to pay back someone who has injured or wounded us with words or with attitudes and actions. And what Paul is saying is this. Do not give the response of retaliation and punishment. I want you to look at verse 18 because I think it sets a bit of a balance on this. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. I think that captures the essence of this idea. Reject any punishment or retaliation when you are wrong. Don't let it take root in your heart. Do your part. Do all that you can to remain at peace with everyone. Now, let me say this as a qualifier on this command. Okay? Reject retaliation and punishment. Okay? Don't do that. Don't go there. It's categoric. Okay? When you go to chapter 13 and verse 4, you're going to find that, that, that God isn't saying that punishment in and of itself is essentially wrong. But what he is saying is that it is wrong for individuals, we use the word in America, vigilantes, to take justice into their own hands. That taking justice into your own hands is clearly what is forbidden in this text. But when I come to chapter, verse 4 of chapter 13, notice what it says. He that is speaking about government or the governor, the president, whoever it is, he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring, and here's the word, punishment on the wrongdoer. Okay? So the rejection of revenge and punishment, retaliation, does not rule out the place of human government. It's just let, let the people that God has entrusted with those kind of responsibilities fulfill those responsibilities. Okay? Retaliation is so natural. I was driving home from my office a little bit later last night because we were out of town for two days to take my daughter to a college. And I was driving down Route 57, had my high beams on, and I must have been zoning out and just driving, not realizing there was a car coming towards me. And uh, I got the flash of the lights, and I was like, oh, okay. I pulled mine down to the low beam. Have you ever had this happen? When that person gets maybe like 20 yards from you, they kick them back on high, okay, to make a statement to you, I got you back, okay? Has, have any of you ever done that? Don't answer that question, okay? It, it, it is so incredibly natural for us when someone wounds or injures us in an unjust fashion. It is so natural. You know what Paul says four times in this text? Do not do that. It is absolutely forbidden and prohibited for those that are seeking to practice the love of Christ. Folks, you know what that means for me? It means I have a lot of work to do. I am, I am stunned at times by how reactive I can be to circumstances in my life, particularly when I'm out driving in the car. It amazes me how little things can aggravate me, how I can be thinking in my mind, because this is the only justification. I would never do something that stupid. So why would they? And th there's this pride. And that's why earlier in the verses I read to you, Paul says, cultivate a mindset of humility. Pursue harmony. You can't pursue those things while harboring a spirit that retaliates, that reacts to everything that happens to you. So the first directive that Paul gets us that's going to help us to get along in the context of church life, to practice sincere love towards others, including those who injure us. The first 
principle that we need to let settle into our hearts is that we need to learn to reject and resist responses of retaliation and punishment. We need just to agree with God that it is absolutely and categorically forbidden for Christians. May God call us to such a standard. Now, if in your mind you're thinking, I can't do that, okay? I want you to think about Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, okay? Because my response to this statement that I just made, reject all retaliation and punishment, my response in my flesh is, I can't do that. I can't. But Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit of the Spirit, first off, is what? It's love. And I don't think it's by mistake that love is put there first. Because I believe that Christian love is what makes all the other virtues of the Christian experience possible. And so we need to reject retaliation, and instead embrace the theme of love. The second thought that I think will help us here is this. We're going to practice sincere love towards people, including those who injured us. We need to trust God with the outcome when we are wronged. Okay, we need to trust God with the outcome of circumstances in which we are wronged. And I, I, in my notes, and I think maybe I left this in in yours, Trust God with the outcome, not if, but when you are wronged. All right, if you live in the context of relationships, there's going to be issues that come up. It's just the way that life is. If you find yourself being retaliatory, punishment-oriented, okay, please understand this. If that is my response, I am not trusting God. Okay, if my response is I'm going to take this matter into my own hands and retaliate or give the appropriate punishment, then I am not trusting God as I should. Notice what he says in verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends. And the idea is don't take into your hands the responsibility for retaliation and punishment. And then I love what Paul says. My friends in the original language is the word beloved. Okay, it is Believers who have experienced the same grace and love of God that Paul has experienced. So he's looking at the church in Rome and saying, Beloved, do not take revenge. Remember the love that God has poured out upon you. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I want you to notice the thrust of this text. The motivation for trusting God with the outcome when you are wrong is that God has made a promise to you. His promise is this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, you know what that means? That means when you are wrong, you have a choice. Either you are going to, and I am going to, play God and assume that I can adequately give out what is required. Or I'm going to trust God. But see, if I don't trust God, what am I going to do? I'm going to play God's role. I'm going to take the responsibility for retaliation and punishment into my own hands. And that, I believe, in this text is expressly forbidden. The call to trust, I think, is very clear when he says, for it is written. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's justice. For it is written. What does he do? He calls up a promise from the Old Testament that is now to cast a shadow over our experience in the body of Christ. If someone wrongs you, don't retaliate. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God to be God. Okay, a very, very strong and direct command. 
Application, I think, is very simple. If I retaliate, I am saying, God, I don't trust you, or even worse, I'm going to fulfill your role in my life. Why is this such a challenge for us? Why is it so hard for us to not take revenge? Why is that so hard? I think the answer to that question is this. We worry that those who have wronged us will get away with it and may not get what they deserve. Let's be honest. Let's see, if I trusted God, when the wrong comes, I would respond like Christ, who when he was rebuffed, Isaiah 53 and the Gospel of Luke say, he did not open his mouth. When he was falsely accused and lied about the creator of the universe, he did not open his mouth. We were visiting Liberty University campus, and on Friday night we went to a hockey game. I love watching hockey live. But there is something about that sport that provokes retaliation. And it, it's true in many realms of athletics. A player who has a tendency to do uh, nasty things behind the ref's back what does that do to the crowd? Let's be honest, it depends which side you're on. <laughs> which is scary. Which is scary. But man, if a ref misses a dirty call that happened behind his back, the place goes crazy. You know why? We're afraid that that person is going to get away with it. And so we, we have this natural tendency to want to seize the moment and take the revenge into our own hands. People cheer wildly when a payback shot is given. Because it was deserved. And you're asking yourself when you watch this in athletic environments of all kinds, okay, how is this Christian? That the payback is what brings the wildest cheers from the crowd. The hard hit to the guy that gave the dirty hits like, yeah, he got it. You can ask yourself, what? What are we doing? Okay, what are we doing? God calls us, I think, to a higher standard. That trust Him in all things. And I think it's captured in the life of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Would you just listen to this? How Christ emulated trust in the Father's plan when He was being injured and wounded wrongly. Paul says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He was perfect. Yet, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And the question that comes to mind is, why? Why was he able and willing to bear unjust treatment, revenge, retaliation, punishment. Why was he willing to bear that? And the answer Peter gives is very clear. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Folks, you know why Jesus Christ on the cross and in the process of his uh, courtroom situations leading up through the passion to the crucifixion, why he did not open his mouth? You know why? Because he trusted 
himself to him who judges justly. He knew that at the end of the day, God in heaven would set the record straight. And you know what it brought him? It brought him deliverance from hostility, from bitterness. Because he knew that the eye of God was seeing all things. And it brought into his heart a freedom to do the will of God without having to pay back. This trust of God that doesn't retaliate when wronged is hard in the context of marriage when the mate is unkind. It is hard with an abusive, unkind, bitter parent who can never be pleased. It is hard with a manager at work who trashes your reputation to protect his or her own reputation. And in your mind, what you're wondering is this. Will the truth ever come out? Will it ever come? That's what bangs around in the back of our mind. Will this person get what they deserve? Can I qualify that by saying this? Do you want what you deserve? Do you want what you deserve? Because as the question bangs around in my mind, will they get what they deserve? Grace is saying, Tim, do you want what you deserve? It will moderate our response and cause us to trust more deeply in God. If you don't trust God, your default will be payback. You will live to render unto people what they have given to you. And it will have a devastating effect in your life. The last thought I think that emerges here from verses 20 and 21, which I believe is just so incredibly powerful, is this. When you're wronged, obey the call of Jesus to live to a higher standard. Obey the call of Jesus to live to a higher standard. The higher standard is this. Imitate his love. Verse 20. On the contrary, to revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And I want you to notice that the opponent here is someone who is committed to your destruction. Not a brother in Christ. Not someone out on the street that isn't necessarily your enemy. Just someone who has said something they shouldn't have said. Okay, in the context, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this text to me is fascinating. Why? Because most Christians believe, most of us believe, that if at least we keep our mouth closed when we are provoked, we are somehow obeying the command to love others. I, I'll tell you this, I personally feel that way at times. You just freeze them out. Give them the cold non-response and feel that, okay, that doesn't violate God's directives. We settle for a standard that is lower than the standard that Jesus Christ established. He didn't simply walk away from the trial and crucifixion. He gave himself for those that were judging him unjustly without retaliation, which is fascinating to me. In this passage, Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. He's always also quoting from Matthew chapter 5. The command of Jesus, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't simply settle for non-retaliation. If, if, if all you hear from me this morning is this, okay, when someone wrongs me, if my wife says something to me that irritates me, if my children disregard my God-given authority in their life, if someone has their high beams on, I'm just not going to retaliate. And think that in that non-retaliation, 
I am obeying the command of this passage of Scripture. You are missing the, the purpose of this text. This text calls us to a higher standard when we are injured and when we are wrong. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. That means that I need towards those who have wronged me to take concrete, active steps just like Christ did. Serve those, here's the directive, serve those who injure and oppose you. Doing good, Douglas Moo said in regard to this text, is a planned response. Folks, I want to tell you this. To, to help an enemy is not a naturally occurring response. It takes work. It takes a commitment to God's plan and God's will in your life to do that. Now, there's a statement in this text then that's often misunderstood. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. How do, how do most Christians paraphrase this statement? Here's what most Christians say. You kill them with kindness. Okay? Heap burning coals on their head. Kill them with kindness. Okay, and it sounds like just another way to exact revenge. Okay, the heaping of burning coals on someone's head, the idea is to, to in your love for them, call them to a place of repentance. Obviously, the, 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 the burning coals in the Old Testament typically carried this idea of sacrifice and of judgment. But the goal in this text is clearly positive. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And when you do that, you are doing him good. And the question is how? Here, is I, here I believe is how. If I respond to provocation, to insult and injury with love, it is then that I make God visible to the world around me. I want to read for you a passage real quickly. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12. Listen to this text. It says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Okay, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That is to say, I believe that God and his love becomes visible when we as Christians practice a biblical love that is not retaliatory. But instead it is a love that loves those who injure us. Verse 21, Paul concludes by saying this. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In these acts of love, concrete displays of love and service to those who have injured and wounded. In this, we conquer evil with good. In this, we protect the church and her reputation. As I was going through this text, it brought to my mind a story from three years ago. October 2006, a man named Charles Robert enters an Amish schoolhouse. Shoots Ten schoolgirls, five die, one is physically incapacitated for life. And four children will bear the scars of that act of hatred against them. Shortly after that event, members of the community expressed desire to forgive the gunman, which is astonishing. Astonishing. 
they put out this statement. Many from Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, have pointed out that forgiveness is a journey and that you need help from your community of faith and from God to make and to hold on to a decision not to become, and listen to this statement, to make and hold to a decision not to become a hostage to hostility. It is understood, they said, that hostility destroys community. And folks, here's my fear for families in our church, for individuals in our church, and for our church family. After I read this, it, it, it so captured the, the heart of this text. What is Paul really saying? He's saying, don't allow yourself to become a hostage to hostility. What is he saying? If you harbor hostility in your heart towards people who have wounded or wronged you in the context of your family, your workplace, your community, your church, if you harbor that hostility, you will become its hostage. It will destroy your life. And it will destroy your capacity to love others with the sincere, unhypocritical love that flows out of a heart that recognizes that God has forgiven me. Hostage to humility. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Don't allow hostility to take a root in your heart because if you do, you will become its hostage and it will rule you for the rest of your life. And destroy your capacity to enjoy intimate relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. With the world around you. Because you will always live a guarded life. You will always hold people at a distance. Because you've been injured and wounded. We all have. Every person who breathes know what it is to be hurt, injured, and wounded. Some live as hostages to hostility. Some yield to the love of Christ. And when Paul says... Don't pay back evil. Don't retaliate. They're asking themselves the question, do I want God to give me what I deserve? And the profound answer that comes back from Scripture is no, no. And if God doesn't give me what I deserve, then how should I relate to people around me who injure, wound, and hurt? I need to be sure that I make a commitment not to retaliate, not to hold them hostage and myself hostage and a lifelong tug and war of bitterness that seeks to get the leg up on the other person, just like a hockey game, just like a football game, just like a wrestling match. Everybody waiting for payback. It, it never creates a pleasant crowd, ever. But when love and forgiveness are practiced, it makes the unseen Christ visible to the world around us. It makes the unseen Christ visible to the world around us. Here's how Jesus put it. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, and I love this, so that you may literally be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may become sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Will you let that settle in? What do we do? We, in loving those who wound and injure us, make 
the invisible God visible for the world around us. May God help us to live in such a way. Only when we love like this in hard things will a watching world see Jesus in our lives. And only when we love like this will we escape being hostages to hostility. And only when we understand this will we stop wondering if they'll ever get what they deserve and become very grateful that you and I, because of Christ, do not get what we deserve. Romans 5.8, as we move into our time in communion, says this. It says, God showed his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, you know what makes us one? What makes us one is the fact that we all come to the Lord's table this morning, if you have trusted Christ, from the same place. We're all sinners who have experienced the love and grace of God that is extended to those that were hostile towards him. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 5.8. God showed his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, rebels, Christ died for us. And in dying for us, he made the love of God visible. The consequence of my sin, according to the gospel, falls on Jesus Christ. He takes my deserved punishment upon himself. And as a result, as one writer has said, I as a Christian am always doing better than I deserve. This morning as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, maybe in your heart there resides hostility that has made you a hostage. A hatred of someone who has wounded or injured you. And that hostility is controlling your life. The best place to kill that hostility is at the foot of the cross. The best place to kill an attitude of revenge is when you hold these elements in your hands and you realize that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This is forgiveness for you. And so this morning as we go to the Lord's table, I want to encourage you just to examine your heart this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the judgment that you deserve fell on him. And he wants to offer you hope and forgiveness and eternal life. If you would come to him by faith and say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin. And I want you to forgive me and save me today. And if you're a Christian friend here this morning, the challenge from Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, is the same each time we come. Let each one examine themselves and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup in remembrance of what Jesus Christ has so graciously done for us. Let's pray together this morning. Father.